Well, thanks again for being here this morning. And uh, excuse me, I've got to remember my Bible. You know, I've, I haven't preached for two weeks, so I don't know what's going on. I do want to thank Jeff. It was really nice of him to come and give me a break so I could do a little bit of additional preparation uh, for our new series. We just finished the book of James, and I do hope that uh, uh, that was a blessing to you. If uh, the comments I've had are any indication, it was. I think a lot of, a lot of us uh, developed a new appreciation for this book that is somewhat controversial, but really... Uh, could not be more relevant uh, than what we are seeing today. And what I'm going to talk about over the next few weeks is also going to be very relevant to our current cultural and societal context that we're dealing with right now with plagues and famine and fires and economy crashing around the world and struggling to regain its place and all of the other issues if Amos the prophet came back, if we could get him in, in, a, in a telephone booth and move him back, nobody got that, Doctor Who. Uh, if, you, if you brought him back here and he looked at the landscape of our culture today, he would be crying out from the mountaintops, repent, believe the gospel, and turn to Jesus Christ. This is what he'd be saying. Whenever there are these kinds of catastrophic events, it's a signal to the world to call out unto to God and to return to Him. And so the series that I've prepared is going to be entitled Riptides and Redemption. When, uh, when Marty V and I moved to, uh, to Florida... In 1997, I never, I've never been, I lived here in El Paso all my life. The only time I left and lived anywhere of any significance was when we moved to Florida in 1997. I was 42 years old, uh, and we went there so that I could go to graduate school to seminary. We sold our, our business here, and we went to seminary. Well, I hadn't been around the beach. I hadn't been in the jungle. I didn't know anything about green, whatever's green. You know, there's a little of that here. Uh, it, it was uh, a culture shock. But within a few weeks, we decided to go to the beach, and we lived only 45 minutes from New Smyrna Beach and about an hour from Cocoa Beach and about an hour from Daytona Beach. So we were pretty close to the eastern side of Florida. And so I uh, jumped in the car with my family, and we all rushed to the beach. And, of course, like a bunch of newbies, we just run screaming and yelling uh, with our hands flying into the water and jump in the water. And it was great until the sharks showed up. And there are. The Eastern Florida is uh, famous for this. Well, anyway, we started learning and hearing about the dangers of being in the water. And one of the greatest dangers, and those of you that have grew, that grew up around the ocean or you visited or maybe you just know, uh, is a phenomenon called a riptide. Now, a riptide is a very, very strong current, and it runs sideways like a scissor. You've got the coast, and then you've got these tides that run. Sometimes they're, they're non-existent. Sometimes they're fairly strong. Sometimes they're horrifically strong. And so we hadn't been there very long, and we're hearing all about these giant spiders and alligators in every body of water and, you know, the jungle and snakes and this and that and sharks and riptides. And sure enough, we heard a story in the Orlando Sentinel about a son and 
father who got caught in one of these riptides. And it took them, it not only takes you out, sometimes it just takes you parallel to the beach, but sometimes it'll sweep you out into the ocean. This father and son got swept out into the ocean there around New Smyrna Beach uh, to the point that they could not see land. And the riptides are such that they're going in different directions. So the son and the father got separated. And it was like seven hours before they were finally rescued. And thank God they were rescued. And what kills people in the riptides are, uh, the the riptides don't pull you under. They sweep you along. In fact, I've gotten in a riptide. Uh, We used to do it for fun. We'd go out, of course, we'd go out into the water where it's only about four feet where we could stand up. And you could feel the pressure. And if you just lifted your legs and kind of bobbed on the, it would just sweep you off and down you'd go. And that was fun. And then you'd be able to stand up. But if you got out into any deeper water, you could not break free. And the thing that kills people in a riptide is they become afraid. They panic. And they try to break free from the current that's pulling them. And they tell you, they put signs up when there's riptides. It's a warning. Don't go in the water or, you know, stay in shallow water. And there's all this stuff. We had to learn all that in Florida. I watched my son Daniel on his surfboard one day take off so fast. And I ran full speed. Of course, for me, that's not saying much. I ran full speed down the beach and I couldn't. He was just going and I could not see him. And he went over two miles. He was on his surfboard, thank God. But eventually he got back to the shore. Well, this thing can take you out where you can't see the horizon. And uh, what that, I think, shows us is that humanity, I'm going to try to bring this to our current situation in the world and in, in human life. Humanity got caught in a riptide, and that riptide was our own doing. We ignored the warnings of God, and we ran right out into the surf, and we experienced the, the death of sin and darkness and the current that took us and carried us away from safety, from the garden, from paradise, and put us in a place where we could not, by any strength or any stretch of the imagination, have possibly saved ourselves or broken free of that current. And so over the weeks to come, I'm going to take... Uh, several people, we're going to look at not only people, we're going to look at nations and tribes and groups who get caught up in that riptide of sin and get carried away and how God comes in and redeems him. And I think he sets up a pattern. In fact, I would argue that he does indeed set up a pattern of redemption in this context of helplessness, hopelessness, and certain death without somebody coming in and freeing us. So with that brief introduction, if you have your Bibles, open them to um, Exodus chapter 3. I've picked this one because we haven't talked much about Moses over the years. I don't know, I just mentioned him when it comes up in the text. But uh, we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the life of this great prophet, this this, uh, liberator of Israel who becomes uh, an image, a metaphor for a savior. And the Exodus event, the great Old Testament 
redemptive event. Whenever they talked about redemption or salvation, this was the thing they referenced, and that was the exodus from Egypt. Everything else was measured against that the same way that we measure everything against the cross and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the New Testament writers make many, many parallels to exodus from Egypt and Jesus uh, on the cross and going into the grave. So let's read these first 12 verses, a very familiar uh, text. Moses at the burning bush. Try not to picture uh, Charlton Heston, but if you have to, it's okay. Uh, And now hear God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, with that introduction, which was a little longer maybe than necessary, but I hope those of you that come back will just keep this in mind. Here is the paradigm that you see almost exclusively in Scripture. It's repeated, it's different in some places, but it's basically the same thing. You see someone or a nation, or a people, or a tribe, or a group of people who have been caught up in the, the consequences of sin. And they are carried away, if you will, on this tremendous current to the point that they lose sight 
of the horizon. Remember the story of Moses. He's born as a baby, of course, and he's a beautiful child, and his parents are protecting him because the Pharaoh at that time was killing all of the male children in Israel because they were becoming too populous. So, hey, let's kill, let's kill the boy babies and we'll be able to shave the, the uh, population down. So Moses' parents, if you remember, put him in a basket in an ark. They put him in a little basket and they float him down the river. He's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and he's taken into the house of Pharaoh and brought up in the house of Pharaoh as a prince. In Egypt, he's educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. And unlike the movie, there's evidence in Scripture that Moses knew that he was an Israelite, was a Hebrew, was a Levite from the tribe of Levi, even when he was a child. He was brought up knowing that because later on in his life, he saw a taskmaster, a slave master, beating one of his fellow people, one of the Hebrew people, and he went and rescued them. And he killed this Egyptian who was oppressing this Hebrew. And when the news got out, he was in threat of his life, and so he fled into the wilderness, and there he remained for 40 years in obscurity, far from the horizon, far from whatever presumption or thought he had of liberating his people. Seems like he thought he was going to be able to use his place in Pharaoh's house to perhaps make the burden less upon the Hebrew people and possibly bring them to freedom. And so here we see that he is caught up in this retirement. No fault of his, at least in this case. He's out there in the wilderness. No horizon. Whatever aspirations he has are gone. And God comes in and interrupts his life. Listen to what, uh, uh, to what Mother Teresa says. I, I, we had a quote in the bulletin this morning by Mother Teresa. I didn't know that was going to be in there, but I have another good one. Mother Teresa is reputed to have said, once you see truth, you cannot unsee it. You can't unsee it. It's there, and it's there to challenge us. And so God interrupts the life of Moses. His, his life of obscurity is gone. God has appeared to him. And the horizon, whatever horizon he had of liberating the people of Israel that was gone, now it comes back, but in a different context, 40 years in the wilderness. And God interposes himself between Moses and Listen, he interposes himself between Moses and his future. Now, I don't know, I don't know where God found you. I don't know everybody's story. Some of you I do, and I've shared my story in, in church before. Some of you may have had a dramatic conversion experience where you just didn't know the gospel, or maybe you'd it just came to you one time and just you get converted and you get changed and you're just all of a sudden you're a new creature in Christ. Some people come to the gospel slowly. The, the turn is slow and, and they don't remember a, a moment or a definite instant when the, they went from their death to life, but, but they know they're there. And then there are others, I'm sure there's some of you in this room, who grew up in the church and have never known a day in your life 
that Jesus Christ was not your King and not your Lord. Well, in any scenario that you can imagine, I had a friend of mine, Robert Davila, who was a heroin addict. We were very close. And uh, Robert had never heard, he was living in a car, uh, nine years old, he was homeless in Juarez, living in a car and, war- and covering himself at night with newspapers. Uh, he was an orphan. And uh, this friend of mine grew up in the worst circumstances, never heard the name of Jesus other than used as a curse word. And he got arrested many times. But one time he's in the El Paso jail. And out of nowhere, he had this, and he was high on heroin. He was strung out. He was starting to come down. And you, any of you that know what that's like is horrific. It's sick. You're sick and you're, you're out of your mind. And he's right on that threshold. And Jesus came and appeared to him. Now, he's not a Presbyterian, and that's why Jesus appeared to him. He does not appear to Presbyterians. We don't even know. We don't believe in the devil. We don't believe in anything. I'm kidding, of course, because we do believe in all that. And he, and he saved this man, this friend of mine, like that, with nothing. But if God had not interrupted, if he hadn't stepped into that jail cell, if he hadn't come in and, and made himself known to my friend... He would never have known. He would have lived away from the horizon, away from safety and lost. And I bet if we all just, we stop church right now and everybody just start telling your story, almost all of us can say that is how we found our way to church. Whether you're a young person and God has uh, given you faithful parents and they've brought you your whole life or whether you had a conversion experience or you slowly came... Whatever the case is, somewhere along the line, God has interrupted you. He's interposed Himself between you and your future. And He's done something you can't unsee. Now, you can reject Him. You can turn away. There's all, all kinds of stuff. And I'm not going to get into... The, believe me, this is rich with theology, these first few verses. And we can't even begin to take time. But I'm going to try to hit the highlights. Then over the next few weeks, we'll look not only more at Moses, but some other people as well. So in verse 1 through 3, you see an interruption of God. You see Him injecting Himself into the life of this man who's on the backside... Or the west side of the desert where he's in the wilderness, he's, he's a, a shepherd, he's uh, doing low-tech work, uh, he's out there, you know, he's, he would have died, nobody would have ever known he lived, and the people would have remained in slavery. But get this, he not only interrupts, but what you see next is perhaps one of the most beautiful things in Scripture. And if you get this, I hope it will change the way you think and look about your calling. Why did God come and interrupt your life? For what? What did He do it for? Do you ever ask yourself, why am I here? What is my job? What is my role? What is my identity? Why am I supposed to be here? What am I supposed to do with my life? When you're young, you want to know what career you should go in. When you get your career, you want to know how to get out of your career. When you, get out, when you get old, you wonder, you wish you had more career because your money's running out. I mean, it's all, like, it's all this stuff, right? Why did He call you? What is the point of your being in church today? Why have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And it's in verse 4. And a lot of times we just skip right over it, but look at it. Moses, Moses. In just those two, this is very rare 
When you hear someone calling you, uh, you know, Montevie can call you, she can say Chuck and yell across the room, and I'm not exactly sure what that means. Is it a good Chuck or a bad Chuck? Is it going to be, am I in trouble or something? But if it's Chuck, Chuck, I kind of know that it's going to be okay. It's tender. It's gentle. It's, it's a wake-up sometimes. You know, you're, you're trying to get somebody out of bed, and you say, Ugo, Ugo, wake up. There's a tenderness and a gentleness. Listen to what John Calvin says about this in his commentary. John Calvin, it's amazing. Listen. It was not a voiceless spectacle, the burning bush and the voice out of the bush. It was not a voiceless spectacle to alarm the holy man. By calling Moses twice by name, he makes his way into the depths of his heart. And in just those two words, God is telling Moses and you and I and people everywhere that this call, this interruption is for a purpose. And that purpose is intimacy. It's relationship. It's tender. It's gentle. It's loving. It's kind. It's waking someone up out of sleep. It's getting someone out of danger. It's taking them out of harm's way. It is an, a term of endearment and love. Think about this. There's not another religion on the face of the earth. There wasn't one at this time in the ancient Near East, and there isn't one today that tells you that you can have intimacy with the God or gods, he, she, it, whatever they are. Nothing compares to this, where you have God speaking intimately to someone and calling them into relationship. Think of Samuel. He comes to the little boy Samuel who's just a a little tyke and he's serving in the temple. And he comes to Samuel and he says, Samuel... And he thinks it's Eli, so he goes to Eli, not me, sends him back to bed. Voice comes again, Samuel. He goes to Eli, Eli says, no, it was not me, he sends him back out. Happens again, and Eli finally tells him, you know, I think it's God talking to you. When he calls you again, answer, I'm here, here I am. And he does it. And the next call he hears is, Samuel, Samuel, tender, endearing. And he says, I'm here, Lord, speak. Saul, on the road to Damascus, God strikes him down off his donkey. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Personal, intimate. Think of Martha. She's bustling around the house trying to fix things up because Jesus is there and she's a hostess and her sister, Mary, is over there sitting listening to the lesson and just enthralled with the the teaching of, of Christ and the disciples are all there and she's among them. And Martha comes and complains and Jesus says to her tenderly, He doesn't rebuke her, He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried. You're bothered by so many things. Are you hearing this? 
This is God coming into your life and my life and speaking words of tenderness. And I know if your life is anything like mine, you might go a few days and everything's good and you're right with God and all that, but there are other times when you go, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? What am I, my life is going off the rails. I mean, look at my kids, look at my wife, look at my checkbook, look at my job, look at my... You name it. Look at my health. And you go, oh my goodness. And God is saying to you, Saul, Saul, Martha, Martha, speaking to you tenderly. This is his pattern, folks, of calling people, of interrupting their lives, of bringing to them not, I, I object, I object strenuously to people in the Christian faith saying, God is using me. I am an instrument in His hands. I am a tool. As if you haven't read your Bible and don't understand that He did not bring you to be a tool. It is not that you're going to be an instrument. It's not a utilitarian use. That's what the pagan gods did. They created man to serve and be enslaved to them and do their bidding. God does something completely different and this is the pattern. You see you see it with Adam and Eve. We'll look at that some weeks to come. You see it with Abraham. You see it with Noah. You see it in almost every single character. In fact, I would, I would bet we could take anybody and see how God comes and interposes Himself between them and their future and you'll see this pattern. A call to... Are we going to serve Him? Yes. Are we going to work for Him? Yes. But it's not a utilitarian relationship. It is a familial relationship. And I'll tell you folks, if there is one challenge that Christians have, I know I do, and that is knowing that God loves me, really loves me. I have no problem in the world knowing that He loves you. In fact, if you come and talk to me, I will tell you for an hour how much He loves you and adores you. But when I'm alone and I'm facing the struggles of my own life, and I'll bet you're like that, it's hard sometimes to believe it for yourself. And that's why you need to hear this. He says, Moses, Moses, when you love somebody, you want them to know you? When you love someone, you want them to know you? You want them to enter into your life and be with you? And that brings us to this next part. We don't have much time to go on it because this is where you really get into some heavy... Their whole books have been written about each one of these self-disclosures. Here's how God explains Himself to Moses. And remember the pantheon of gods and goddesses and powers and things up there or whatever that Moses was dealing with. And yet... Here's how God introduces him to Moses. The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. Very, right there, instantly, you see two great doctrines of Christianity, of the faith, of, of ancient Judaism and Christianity. That is both the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. The imminence of God in the fact that he's in the burning bush and he's a flame of fire in that bush, but his transcendence is he's not being, the bush is not being consumed. 
God is not just a part of creation. He is over creation. He is in everything. He is everywhere, but He's also over everywhere. There's a distinct separation between... It's not pantheism. He's not in things, but He's in in the, in, in the sense that He is here present. He's not just up there. And this is a great truth that no other religion has. Remember, it's not pantheism. He's not in the trees and the wood and the pulpit and you know all that. No, he's not that. But he is here. He is imminent. He is present. We call it the doctrine of providence. Then you see the holiness of God. And again, we could a whole you could write a book. In fact, there have been books, volumes of books. Don't come near, remove your sandals, verse five. The place you're standing is holy. You know, you can go there today. They have several sites that they'll tell you this is where the burning bush was. There's nothing there now. Why was it holy ground? Because God was there. If He had stepped over here, this would have been holy ground. You see, it's not the place. This building is beautiful, but it's not holy ground. It's holy ground because you're here. You, the people of God are here. That's what makes it a temple. His eternality, he uses the word I am here for the first time. He does it again when he says I am that I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. His loving kindness, his chesed. In Hebrew, it's a marvelous word. I have a book this thick that's all about that one word. It's the lexical depth of this word chesed. Loving kindness, tender mercy, faithful love, covenant faithfulness. It's so rich. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's telling him, this is a relationship that is like marriage, like family, like adoption. Profound. And then you see in 7 and 9, and in verse 8 again, he talks about his imminence. I'm going to come down. I'm coming down to deliver them. That's pretty amazing. But in 7 and 8, he says, I've seen... I have seen and I've had compassion. I see they're being oppressed. Do you know that God sees what's going on in your life? Not just the bad stuff. He sees the good stuff too. And He sees and He knows and He is moved by that. He is compassionate and kind. He is not the God of Aristotle, the unmoved mover who just creates and then sits back in some majestic isolation tank apart from everything else and lets, lets the clock wind itself down. No, you have a God who is tender and loving and caring and never do you need to hear this more than today when our country's being ripped apart by hatred and vitriol, when the church itself can't seem to find its bearings. Uh, we're so invested in politics right now that it, I would say we're being adulterous in the way we approach politics. Unfaithful to our God. And the other side, whoever the other side is in your book, they're being adulterous to something else. And it's time for the church to regain that lost love, regain that passion, because God has called us and invited you. Look at verse 10. He discloses who He is, then He goes and says, 
Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh. I want you to bring my people out. I want you to bring me out of here. Why did God save you? He wants you to be with Him. And being with Him will empower you to go to Pharaoh. It's not just Moses that has to go to Pharaoh. You and I have to go to Pharaoh. We have got to say no to the beasts of this culture, to the antichrists of this culture, wherever we find them. And say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And whoever gets, you know, I'm hearing on the news, on both, if Donald Trump is elected, end of the world. And then I listen to another news channel, and I hear the commentators screaming, shrill, they're shrill. The most important election of our lifetime. When you're listening to that, I hope you have one word that you will say to the television. You ready for this? Ready? You ready? Okay. Baloney. This is not the most important election of anything. Baloney. Jesus Christ is Lord. And I serve Him. And yeah, I'm going to vote. And I'm going to do my best to get my candidate elected. Even if I have to write him in, or her, or me, whatever. But I'm not going to wring my hands and be scared to death and let all this apocalyptic fear-mongering come into my life. I don't care if it's right, left, middle, or anybody else. Baloney! He invites us to go speak to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh may be in the White House and Pharaoh may be in the Kremlin. I don't know where he is, but you're called to go speak to him, not get in bed with him. Can I have a weak amen? All right. I know y'all are Republicans, but, you know. (laughs) All right. Look look at what he does. i got to finish quickly here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's the interruption. There's the intimacy. Here's the invitation. Listen, but rise, go into the city, and there it will be told to you what you should do. Go to the Gentiles. That was like Pharaoh. My God, go to the Gentiles. I'm going to get killed for this. And he was. Martha, Martha, you're so worried. You're so bothered about so many things. There's the interruption. There's the intimacy. Here's the invitation. Listen to it, my friends. Only one thing is needful. And and in Greek it says, really, only one. And that is, sit at my feet. Be with me. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. Hear my words. Then you can go to Pharaoh. Oh my gosh. Moses, of course, I, I, know that, I hope you're tracking with me. Moses has given this impossible task. And what's the first thing that Moses said? This is very telling because we all do this. The first thing Moses says to God in uh, verse 11 is, Who am I that I should go? And God does something really amazing. He answers him in two ways. First of all, he answers him and says, by not saying anything, he says, I know you're nothing. But then he tells me, I will be with you. Do you see that, folks? 
You know, he's not looking for people with great and grand gifts and because, you, you know, he didn't choose me because of my eloquence and the, and the, 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 the compassion that just oozes from my body and the, the love that I have for everything from the piano to you to everybody. He didn't choose me because of all my good looks and, and my muscles and my... Come on, laugh, folks. I mean, I'm being funny. I'm self-deprecating. That's supposed to be funny. All right. Sorry, Rick. I should. <laughs> he tells me, quit telling your stupid jokes. All right, so look, folks, he didn't choose me. I'm not choice. I'm chosen, but I'm certainly not. I mean, he couldn't have picked a weaker, more messed up person to be your pastor. Why? I will be with you. No, you're not. I'm not looking for you to go do it. I'll be with you. If you're here, God has interrupted your life. I don't know how, I don't know where, but He's interrupted you and He's called you into a relationship of intimacy and a relationship where He is letting you know everything you need to know about Him. Enough so that you could spend a lifetime studying Him and studying and learning about Him. Not just learning about Him, but knowing Him intimately. And He's inviting you folks for a purpose so that you can live in this world. And our, our culture is upside down. There are, there are currents, riptides running through our culture today that are absolutely frightening. And over the next few weeks, hopefully we'll be able to touch on those. Nothing new. They're the same old things. The devil puts them in different uh, containers and he reserves it. He just warms them up. And serves us nothing but trashy old leftovers. And we gobble them up sometimes. We don't think that God has invited you to be with Him, to learn of Him, to have a relationship with Him so that you can go out into this world and face Pharaoh. And how do you know? How do you, where do you get the power for that? How could you possibly do that? And I'll tell you where. There's one other place in Scripture where a man cried out twice. Crying out for intimacy. Calling out with his heart broken and ripped, his body shredded. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And that cry for intimacy, that cry of faithfulness from the cross, was Jesus being carried away by the riptide of your sin and my sin out beyond where there was no horizon. That's why He's crying out, my God, my God, there's no horizon for Him. Why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer And the reason there was no answer is so that every day of your life you will know for certain that there isn't a riptide in life that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can take you away from His horizon if you look back and see the cross where the horizon was blotted out for your Savior. And if you trust Him, if you put your hope and your life in Him, then like Him, you will be raised from the dead. The resurrection 
and the life of the world to come. We read it in our creed this morning. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in Jesus. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much for the love and intimacy that you have shown us in the most incredible act of redemption this world has ever seen or known. You did not spare your son. You gave him up. And you took a brief moment in cosmic time and did not answer his cry so that we could be answered every day of our lives. Help us. Save us. And have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace, we pray through Jesus. Amen. Please stand, let's sing this final chorus, and we'll be dismissed.